Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 40, Wheels Within Wheels, Toward Western Esoteric Cosmology. When we last left the night sky in episode 10, we were in the ancient Near East, and a long development of interest in the stars and other heavenly bodies had been going on for thousands of years, culminating in the most important Babylonian contribution to the formation of scientific astronomy, which was the arithmetization of astronomical data and predictions. The next step in the story of astronomy takes place in Greece, and particularly in Hellenistic Greece. And this episode will take us on a quick tour of some of the key earlier developments in Greek astronomy, which lead us up to the eve of the Hellenistic period with the works of Aristotle. But since our sojourn in Mesopotamia was a while ago now, in terms of this podcast, as well as in terms of human history, let's briefly revisit the ancient night sky of Babylonia and remind ourselves of the basic picture of Near Eastern astronomy up to about 500 BCE. We'll recall that the Babylonians, and just as we did in episode 10, we're referring to a diverse cast of characters as Babylonians here, which isn't exactly right, but the language of the astronomical texts we're dealing with is generally Babylonian, even in the Persian period, so let's just stick with Babylonians as a shorthand. Now, the Babylonians, as we recall, were not astrologers in a strict sense, but they were really interested in interpreting the movements of the heavenly gods, that's planets to you and me, to find out what was going to happen, or sometimes to find out what would happen unless certain rituals were performed to square things with the gods. So we're not talking about a fatalist, deterministic type of astrology here, which we will see in some later astronomy astrology. They believed that the omens predicted things which might happen, not that would ineluctably happen. So they had a strong belief in astral omens. Their great anthology of about 7,000 of these omens, the Enuma Anu Enlil, took form before the 10th century BCE and was used thereafter for centuries as a kind of guidebook to omens. One of the ways this omen literature and the practices associated with it differed from astrology as it developed later was that the omens didn't, until a late period, pertain to individual private people. The omens mainly referred to the ups and downs of the royal house, of the empire, and to good and bad harvests, and other large-scale events with political consequences. So this was a kind of imperial astrology, if we want to call it astrology at all. And as an imperial endeavor, from the 8th century onwards, there was an official scribal staff devoted to taking detailed observations of astronomical and meteorological phenomena. In episode 10, I suggested that this bureaucracy was the world's first intelligence agency, spying on the stars from their various outposts around the empire, interpreting the omens, and sending their observations and interpretations back to the central HQ, where analysts would do metadata research and figure out which interpretations were the best, which they would then put into a digest and give that to the king, just like a modern intelligence agency advising a prime minister or a president. After a few hundred years of this celestial intelligence gathering, the Babylonians had a huge centralized database. Patterns which all this long-term data collection revealed, plus the Babylonians' handy place-value numerical notation system, which allowed them to do 
advanced arithmetic much more easily than other peoples like the Egyptians. This all allowed them to get started getting really mathematical with it. And by the 5th century BCE, they'd figured out the so-called metonic cycle, for example, to which we shall return in a moment. And they were able to produce ephemerides tablets, lists of when things would rise and set in given parts of the sky projected into the future. In other words, they were able to make books of predictions about the stars that would actually come true. We don't know if the Babylonians had what you might call a cosmology in the strict sense, but they laid the groundwork for creating a rigorous cosmology based on empirical data by supplying a ridiculous amount of data and beginning the process of analyzing it. Meanwhile, as we also saw in episode 10, the Egyptians weren't up to much astronomy in the early period, though they did have the very useful calendar of 365 days, the solar calendar. Obviously, 365 days isn't quite right, but only in the year 239 BCE did they add leap years, which meant that although their calendar was pretty good, and thus widely adopted, including in many Greek cities, it nevertheless crept back about a day every four years, meaning in 40 years you'd be off by 10 days, in 400 years you'd be off by 100 days, and so on. The Egyptians also invented the decans, 36 mini-constellations. It is widely presumed that they used these decans initially to time religious ceremonies taking place at night, but the decans would go on to have a long life in astrology and Western esotericism, as we shall see. So much for our Babylonians and Egyptians. It's time now to jump over to Greece. But why, you ask, should we jump over to Greece? You said in episode 10 that the Greeks didn't invent scientific astronomy, like everyone said they did in the battle days of Hellenophile racist scholarship. Are you saying that they actually really did invent it after all? No gentle listener, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have lots of evidence for the arithmetical approach to astronomy coming from Babylon, right up to the Persian period, and since Babylonians helpfully wrote on clay tablets, which have a way of surviving when buried. And it's clear that this approach and the data set which informed it were hugely important to the Greeks in their own adventures in astronomy. But the Greeks did indeed do something new and amazing with this material. They took arithmetical data and applied geometry to it, and a will toward systematization. They approached not only the problem of how to predict when a given planet would rise or whatever, but how to model the whole cosmos and describe what it's like. And this led to an explosion of creative, advanced cosmology in the Greek world, starting with the early pre-Socratics and getting really amazing in the Hellenistic period. And here, remember, we're talking about places like Egypt and Babylon as part of the Greek world. So Greece from the 4th century BCE is no longer just Greece because of Alexander's conquests. This episode will attempt a brief introduction to this flurry of intellectual activity, but we'll regretfully have to leave lots of fascinating stuff out. But then we can't just jump from Babylon in the 5th century to Aristotle and say Aristotle thought that the cosmos was made up of concentric spheres, and that's what everyone thought until Kepler came along, because that leaves out many essential parts of the story as well. So what we shall do is compromise and try to get in the most interesting and essential points without losing sight of our goal, which is documenting the rise of the geocentric cosmology, the concept of the universe in which Western esotericism developed. So let's start here with a few general points about the development of Greek astronomy. Then we'll look at two crucial 
authors, in particular Plato and Aristotle, whose ideas, as the celestial wheel of fate would have it, ended up dominating Western celestial interpretation for thousands of years. Finally, while we're on the subject of fate, we'll mention fate very, very briefly, and that will give us a nice segue to our next episode on Hellenistic astrology. So, part one, early developments of Greek astronomy. Now, this podcast is not the place to do an in-depth survey of early Greek astronomy, nor am I remotely qualified to do so. But there are some basic points which we can and should make here. First of all, in general, our evidence is full of holes. Take the aforementioned Metonic cycle, for example. Meton of Athens was a 5th century calendrical reformer who realized something that the Babylonians had already figured out. In a world with many competing calendrical systems, and sometimes very different ones operating in the same time and place for different purposes, dating things could get exhausting, and it was often impossible with any accuracy. Lunar calendars are particularly challenging, as they slip backwards roughly 11 days each solar year, so that to take the Islamic calendar, which is a lunar calendar that's still in use, as an example, the month of Ramadan starts 11 days or so earlier each year moving slowly from summer into spring, from spring into autumn, and so on. This is because the movements of the moon don't perfectly match up with the movements of the earth around the sun. I should say the apparent movements of the moon. Okay, you see what I mean. But Meton realized that 19 solar years equals 235 lunar months plus 7 intercalary months added every 19 years. This was a way of reconciling solar and lunar calendars in the long term, basically the shortest cycle in which you can do this without complex mathematical faffing. Okay, good. We know that the Babylonians had figured out this metonic cycle sometime earlier in the 5th century, if not earlier than that, and we know that Meton figured it out later in that century. We know that there was extensive cultural back and forth between the Persian Empire and the independent Greek cities in the 5th century. But do we have a specific witness that Meton of Athens got his calculation from the Babylonians? No, not to my knowledge. But it seems clear that even if he didn't get it from them directly, he must have had access to some of the data they'd been assembling for hundreds of years in order to have figured it out. In other words, we fill the gap between the Near East and Meton of Athens by assuming a transfer of Mesopotamian knowledge to Athens without having actual documentation of this. And the whole story of early Greek astronomy has lots of holes in it, much like this one. When, for example, do the Greeks figure out that the planets are different from the background stars in that they wander through the night sky? Planetes in Greek means wanderer. We don't actually know, but since we know that the Mesopotamian stargazers had known about this for many centuries before we have any evidence that the Greeks did, it seems plausible that this knowledge was simply passed on at some point. The same thing goes for the zodiac of 12 signs. We can see it gradually developing in Mesopotamia from about the year 1000 BCE, gaining its recognizable form with astronomical houses of equal lengths in the 5th century. And it appears in our earliest Greek exemplar in the 2nd century in the Anaphoricus of Hypsicles of Alexandria. Again, it may have been around sometime before this text in Greece, but we don't have evidence of it. So we can't say how the transfer happened exactly, but it blatantly happened. Unlike with the Metonic cycle, which you could argue Meton just sort of figured out 
using native Greek genius, if you wanted to be staunchly Hellenophile, no one, I think, is going to try to argue that two separate cultures coincidentally both decided that the same sector of the sky was best described as a goat snake. So, second general point. Let's look at the Greek idea of cosmos. The thing to note here, if only in passing, is that the term cosmos in Greek basically means order or arrangement, and it comes to mean something more like universe, which is basically what we mean when we say cosmos in English, in the actual period of pre-Socratic philosophy. So we can sort of see the development of the meaning of the word in progress in writers like Anaximenes, Heraclitus, Empedocles, Anaxagoras, and later on the Pythagorean Philolaus, and Plato, who are all authors who mention cosmos. In the earlier authors, it's quite clear that what they're saying is not the universe, but rather something more like the order of things, the grand design. But in the later authors, like Plato, it starts to slip into meaning something like the world, the universe. I don't wish to overstate the case here, but the cliché that the idea of world as order was very formative on the Greek ways of conceptualizing the, well, the cosmos, does have some truth in it. Seeing the universe as something systematic and ordered means that it's something which can be investigated, something which has laws, something to which systematic modeling might be relevant. And this is indeed how the Greeks tended to approach the cosmos. Philolaus the Pythagorean, whom we met in episode 17, tells us that, quote, things unlike each other and of different kinds and unequally matched must all have connecting links to be part of one cosmos. That's fragment six, and it's a strong statement of some kind of holism or view of the universe as an integral unity. And we have in the classic fragment too, quote, what limits and what is unlimited together make a harmony of the cosmos and the things in it. End of quote. So here we have two primordial principles of peros and aperon, limit and unlimited, creating a fitting together, a harmonia, in the cosmos on all levels. We actually have late evidence from Aetius that Pythagoras himself was the first to call the universe a cosmos. Quote, he was the first to call the sum of the whole by the name of cosmos because of the order which it displayed. End of quote. Make of that what you will. But let's have a look at Pythagoreans here for a moment. As the Pythagorean moment will have very powerful echoes in the history of Western esotericism as regards astronomy specifically, we have a lot of evidence about the Pythagoreans, and listeners to episodes 16 and 17 of the podcast will know that all such evidence tends to be late, complicated, and in need of serious interpretation. But we have a great deal of evidence that the Pythagoreans were very interested in astronomy, and were possibly the first Greek investigators to figure out that the Earth was spherical. The earlier Ionian pre-Socratics, people like Thales and Anaximenes and Anaximander, whom this podcast has pretty much passed by, had other ideas. Anaximander, in the 6th century, seems to have thought that the Earth was a cylinder, with the round ends, or maybe one round end, being the inhabited parts. Kind of cool, but it doesn't get you very far. The Pythagoreans, on the other hand, got very far indeed. In fact, 
many years from now, when we get to the early modern astronomy, astrology in this podcast, we shall be noting that Copernicus and Kepler both saw their work as a revival of the ancient Pythagorean astronomy, in contradistinction to the geocentric neo-Aristotelian model, which had dominated Western thought since Aristotle's time, and to which we are slowly getting. So what did these early modern astronomers know about Pythagorean astronomy? Well, they knew a bit about the system of Philolaos, from Aristotle, from other reports, and from some of the fragments. So let's take a little detour here just to look at the system of Philolaos as it has been imperfectly handed down to us, because it's very interesting. For an introduction to Philolaus, you can check out episode 17 of the Schwepp, as we mentioned. And there we mentioned his ideas about the limit and the unlimited, but we didn't really say much about his cosmology. Philolaus thought that the planets, including the sun, the earth, and the moon, all orbited around a central fire, known as the universal hearth, the altar, the citadel of Zeus, and other evocative names. The details are difficult to nail down with total certainty, but it seems that the Earth rotates around the hearth in such a way that the same side of the Earth is always facing the central fire, and the same side, the inhabited side, is always facing away. This results in one side of the Earth being a charred cinder, and in the fact that we never actually see the central fire as we're always facing away from it. The sun circles around the central fire as well, once a year, while the Earth circles once a day, which is why we see the Sun move across the sky each day, and so on with the other planets and stars, with due account for their varying velocities. Now, Aristotle tells us that Philolaus also posited a tenth planet, the Antichthon, or counter-Earth, opposite us, but on the other side of the central fire which we can also therefore never see, which according to Aristotle was just put there to make the whole system add up to the Pythagorean number 10. We may doubt Aristotle's interpretation here, but we don't really have the ability to make a better hypothesis based on the existing evidence. So that's the outline of Philolaus's system of the cosmos. Obviously, he didn't really anticipate modern astronomy, but he did have some ideas which are very modern and which would be forgotten in mainstream astronomy for several thousand years. And let's look at them. Philolaus has the Earth moving, for one thing, and he has it circling around a big, hot, stellar body. Not bad, even if it is a stellar body which doesn't actually exist. And he has the Earth rotating, just enough to maintain its relative position to the central fire. So his is not a geocentric universe, nor is his Earth stable, unmoving. The fact that there were non-geocentric models out there was well known in antiquity and throughout the Middle Ages, but seemingly no one would take this idea seriously again until the early modern period, once Plato and Aristotle had got their grubby paws on intellectual history. So score one for the ancient Pythagoreans in retrospect. Needless to say, the Pythagoreans were important in that they may have been the first Greeks to figure out or just to decide that the Earth was spherical. But this is an idea which won't be forgotten in the ensuing centuries. Educated people from ancient Greece onward, right through the Middle Ages, in the West, all knew that the Earth was roughly spherical. The idea that people used to think the Earth was flat is a bizarre fiction. Oh, and the idea of the counter-Earth is just really cool. We should mention here that there was more than one simple system going on in 
Pythagoreanism. Ecphantus, another Pythagorean, also theorized that the Earth turned on its own axis and may have made this the prime reason the other planets seem to move across the sky. It's a bit difficult to interpret what we have of his system. So clearly there was a lot of very different but very fruitful speculation going on in Pythagoreanism about the cosmos. And while we don't have anything like all the details, we can see that these Greeks were running with the possibilities that geometric analysis was gave to cosmology and trying to different stuff out to see what worked. And they were not wedded to the idea that the Earth was at the center of everything. However, this was all going to change, and this brings us to part two of our episode, The Rise of the Geocentric Cosmos. About the time Philolaus and his colleagues were doing their thing in southern Italy, over in Athens, the seeds were being sown for the cosmology which was to dominate the West for about 2,000 years. This was the geocentric cosmos, with the Earth as a stable center of everything and all the celestial bodies rotating round the Earth. And we can put the development and subsequent dominance of this model down to two names, Plato and Aristotle. We'll make a few comments on the cosmologies of each here, and please note again that we'll be leaving out the majority of the story of the development of Greek astronomy in the interests of brevity and focus. So please don't think that this is a complete summary of that development. The goal is to give a general outline of how the cosmos came to be the cosmos which Western esotericism inhabited. And in some ways, modern esotericists still do inhabit this cosmos whenever they practice astrology, which is still based on essentially the ancient geocentric model. So let's start then with Plato. Never a bad idea when you're trying to get a handle on developments in Western thought. We've looked at Plato's great cosmological dialogue, the Timaeus, in episode 27. There's cosmological stuff scattered elsewhere in the dialogues as well. The myth of Ur in the Republic has a crazy visionary depiction of the cosmos as a kind of cutaway schema, see episode 30. And in the Phaedrus, the ascending winged souls moving toward the world of forms actually need to fly up to the outermost sphere of the cosmos and stick their heads above it to see the archetypes, which you might not want to interpret cosmologically, since it clearly deals with epistemological matters of attaining to higher knowledge. But then, since the heavens in the Timaeus are made out of soul, they too are somehow epistemological, right? So with Plato, the point here is it's really hard to separate the cosmological from the epistemological. Good. But let's look at the Timaeus for a moment, just in terms of Plato's model of how the heavenly bodies move. How seriously Plato meant it, how scientific it was meant to be, none of these questions interest us. Let's just look at what's in the Timaeus. First of all, movements of the heavenly bodies are a movement of soul, as we mentioned. Secondly, the stars and planets are for Plato, embodied gods. It's their perfect rational consciousness or mind which accounts for the perfect regularity of the celestial motions in the Timaeus account. The heavens are a visible divine sort of mechanism, and the divine favors the perfect, and the circle is the most perfect geometric shape. Now, this brings us to our first stopping place. What, you might ask, is so perfect about the celestial motions? I mean, they're actually kind of random, right? Well, good point, gentle listener. So, whether or not it was Plato who invented this idea, 
and authors sometimes want to attribute it to the Pythagoreans, who influenced Plato, but that's an educated guess. He certainly maintains it. The heavenly bodies must, by definition, move in perfect circles. By maintaining this incorrect axiom, Plato has a lot to answer for, because until the time of Kepler in the 17th century, everyone we know of who tried to model the cosmos did so based on the supposition that the heavenly bodies must be moving in perfect circles. And it turns out that they aren't. They're moving in parabolas. Hence the ingenious circles within circles that develop in Greek astronomy to try to make this theory fit the observed facts. Ptolemy, a late antique astronomer who synthesizes the earlier work in Greek astronomy, we get all manner of creative ways of making circles describe the phenomena of the sky, such as epicycles and circles which are not centered on the earth, but slightly offset, and so on and so forth. It works, but parabolas work better. The other main point to make about Plato here as a cosmologist is that he places the earth in the center of it all. Now, in the Timaeus, there is one difficult to interpret sentence, which might be saying that the earth spins on the cosmic axis along with everything else. But whether he's saying this or saying that the earth is stationary, either way, he puts the earth at the center of everything. Now, one final point about the cosmology of the Timaeus. It attempts to make sense of the difference between the regular seeming movement of the background stars and the apparent wandering of the planets, sun, and moon. Plato posits here the circle of the same and the circle of difference, keen listeners will recall. These were strips cut from the universal soul by the demiurge, wrapped into circles, and set in the heavens with a slight offset. The circle of the same represents the basic movement of the fixed stars according to the celestial pole or axis. The circle of the difference, of course, is slightly askew from this axis and accounts for all the wandering bodies. It's roughly um, the path of the ecliptic, as modern astronomers call it. Plato's Timaeus also accounts for the apparent retrograde motion of planets using, basically, development of this catch-all explanation. So the regular stuff is on the circle of sameness or the same, and all the wacky stuff that happens in the sky is on the circle of the different. Now, Plato doesn't really go all out in trying to model the cosmos in a mathematically satisfying way. But a friend of his, Eudoxus of Cnidos, made a very influential early attempt at this. Eudoxus is an interesting guy. He was actually active in Plato's academy, but a specialist on mathematical astronomy. So a few episodes ago, when we alluded to a kind of intercollegial learning model as one possibility for how the academy might have worked, uh, this guy, Eudoxus, would have maybe been the head of the astronomy department in the academy. Certainly, Eudoxus would not go to Plato for astronomical knowledge, since his own thought was far more advanced than Plato's, as far as we can tell. Now, Eudoxus was a spheres man, like Plato, but he made serious moves toward solving the problem of retrograde motion. And his system seems to have been a prime ingredient in Aristotle's system, so it's worth saying a few things about it here. This stuff is really fascinating, but it's really difficult to explain without visual aids, so I refer listeners to the books mentioned in the recommended reading of this episode if you want to get an idea of how all this worked. But basically what Eudoxus did was starting with the idea of the Earth at the center and the planets revolving on invisible spheres, 
he tried to account for the observed motion of the planets, including their apparent retrograde motions, by spheres within spheres within spheres. So, retrograde motions are when the planets are cruising along nicely, and suddenly seem to go backward in the sky for a time, before resuming their normal course. And all the planets do this. Now, Eudoxus accounted for this by adding more invisible spheres with different proper motions. All the same speed, but with different axes of spin. So each planet ends up having four spheres. The outermost produces the slow general west-to-east motion of the planets across the night sky, roughly following the ecliptic. Another sphere produces the east-to-west daily motion of the planet around the Earth. Further in, two more spheres with their axes tilted relative to each other account for retrograde motion through the interaction of their separate orbits. Again, check out a diagram to see all, how all this works. Not all the heavenly bodies have retrogrades, of course, so the sun and the moon just have three spheres each. Each of the planets have four, giving 27 cosmic spheres in all, when we count the outer sphere of the fixed stars, which is just single, because its motion is very simple to the observer on Earth. Now, Eudoxus' spheres were, as far as we can tell, not meant to be actual physical spheres in the sky that one could bump into if one were flying around up there. They were geometric constructs imagined for the purpose of explaining celestial movements. But this brings us to a man who thought there really were invisible spheres nested all around in the sky. I refer, of course, to Aristotle. We're jumping to Aristotle now, because his cosmology, as laid out in the Meteorologica, the De Kylo, or On the Heavens, and elsewhere in his many works, became the go-to basic theory for most of Western history. This isn't entirely true, it's an oversimplification, and his theory was filtered by several types of later work. Both the syntheses of his interpreters, people like Alexander of Aphrodisias, who ironed out his system and made it make a little more sense, and the influential works of Ptolemy, whom we'll be talking about in the next episode. But it's true in the general outlines. Aristotle took the work of Plato, Eudoxus, and all the other theories which were floating around in Greece at the time, applied his own keen observational logical skills to the problem, and came up with a cosmic system which would go on completely to supplant the freewheeling ideas of earlier thinkers. When late antiquity and the Middle Ages wanted to read the top authority on astronomy, they read Aristotle. So here, in ridiculously brief form, are what I take to be the most relevant elements of Aristotle's theory of the heavens and the earth. We start with the earth in the center. Of course, it can't be moving, as Aristotle proves, by making the point that if you shoot an arrow straight up in the sky, it will kill you. But if the earth were moving, it would logically fall somewhere behind you, along the path of the earth's motion. Wrong, but uh, maybe I'm dumb, but I can see why he thought this. If you're running and you throw a rock straight up in the air, it does fall behind you if you're fast enough. And please don't try to verify this arrow experiment empirically. It's safer to assume that Aristotle was right about this, at least. He also got right the fact that the Earth is spherical. He proves this in a number of ways, including noting that the shadow it cast on the moon is curved, and that ships sailing off into the distance eventually disappear below the horizon. If there are any flat earthers out there listening, they are invited to check these points empirically. Now, Aristotle took the sphere idea 
and took it quite literally. He got rid of eight of Eudoxus's spheres, which basically served to give the impetus of east-west motion to each of the heavenly bodies. And remember here, when, when I say eight, the sphere of the fixed background stars is always being counted by our guys as a single unit. So sphere of the fixed stars, sun and moon, plus five planets, equals eight. And he replaced these with a single outer sphere, which gave motion to the whole ensemble, the primum mobile, as the Latin Middle Ages would come to know it. But he added a bunch of other spheres for a total of 55 altogether. So his cosmos is thus finite in space, with a stationary Earth at the center, surrounded by a Chinese puzzle of 55 nested, invisible, indestructible cosmic spheres, but interestingly, infinite in time. There's no reason for Aristotle to think that the universe ever began or would ever end. So finite in space, infinite in time. Finite in space, you ask, well, what's outside it then? Here, Aristotle gives a very resonant and influential answer. Outside the primum mobile is the timeless, spaceless, quality-less being which is the ultimate cause for the whole setup. Now, we might think that positing such a being is just another way of positing a beginning to the allegedly beginningless universe, but Aristotle didn't think so. So, where is the unmoved mover if it's not in space? Well, it's, according to Aristotle, in quite a platonic sort of a place, a place outside the spheres, but without time, space, or qualities. Now, that may not make sense, or it may make sense, but either way, that's what Aristotle thinks. Now, let's pause here again and think about this in terms of Western culture. We've already seen Plato in the Phaedrus depicting the world of immaterial archetypes, the world of forms, as lying outside the outermost cosmic sphere. Aristotle is doing something reminiscent of this here, although he's clearly not doing exactly the same thing. But to fast forward a bit, the structural setup that these two authors were adumbrating led to a cosmic scheme whereby whatever divine power you wanted to believe in or divine place you wanted to believe in, the Christian God, the Christian heaven, the divine noose, the world of forms, which might or might not be the same thing as the noose, the Gnostic pleroma, whatever it was, you knew where it was, outside the outermost cosmic sphere. Q. Heaven. Aristotle had one more theory, apparently original to him, which we must mention here. This was the theory of quintessence. Like Plato before him, he seems to have accepted the four traditional elements, fire, air, earth, and water, which we first saw in Empedocles as the basic sort of constituents of things. But unlike Plato, Aristotle thinks that the heavens being the realm of eternal perfect circles that they are, they must be made of something very different. This, for Aristotle, was the quintessence, the fifth element. This stuff doesn't behave much like the other elements. It has no qualia, that is, no particular accidental qualities, and it's imperishable, it's indestructible, immortal stuff, which accounts for the heavens not seeming to suffer from wear and tear, like stuff on Earth does. Now, the moon, the lowest of the heavenly bodies, marks the borderline between our world, 
of the elements and the higher world of the quintessence. And that's where this idea of the sublunary world comes from, as in, nothing here in the sublunary world lasts forever, and similar statements. Another influential idea, which we shall meet again. Now, normally for Aristotle, the sublunary world cannot interact with the cosmos at large because of the this being made of different stuff theory. And this is why, for example, he classes comets and meteors as a kind of weather phenomenon rather than a phenomenon of the celestial realm, since they obviously are not perfectly circular and regular and so on, so they must exist below the moon, logically. So they're some kind of what we would call an atmospheric phenomenon, which in the case of meteors is not wrong. But anyway, this incidentally is why the study of the weather is still called meteorology. But Aristotle's system has a problem here lurking within it. The sun obviously does affect us, as we can feel it warming us up when we stand in bright sunlight. Moreover, the sun's double motion along the ecliptic is the cause of generation and corruption in the lower world, and it keeps the four elements from separating out into four static layers, acting like a giant celestial whisk, making sure that the elemental salad dressing doesn't go all layery. The moon is responsible for the timing of women's menstrual cycles, and so on and so on. In fact, it turns out that Aristotle thinks the wheeling cosmic bodies are the ultimate source of all motion in the sublunary world, and everything that happens down here is ultimately referable to what happens up there. Quote, Independence on it, that is, independence on the heavens as a whole, independence on it, all other things have their existence and their life, some more directly, others more obscurely. This is from Aristotle's De Kylo 1, 9, or 279a28-30 to 30 in the Becker numbers. So Aristotle has a problem here. We'll leave this problem for now to return to it later, because it's going to be the motor for much interesting speculation. But the key problem is that if the heavens are disconnected from the Earth, how do the heavens affect the Earth? And it's a key point worth making that Aristotle, as we saw for Plato, if indeed the Timaeus of Plato is to be read as Plato's real opinion about how the cosmos works, for Aristotle, the cosmic cycles taken together are a kind of, well, celestial machine or mechanism or complex thingy in which the higher levels dominate the levels below them, and so on, right down to our own humble level here on Earth. So at the center, we're sort of at the center of this giant wheeling cosmic soul clock, or what have you, which is affecting us very deeply in complex ways, differently for Plato than for Aristotle, but similarly in a structural sense. We can now see here, I hope, even setting aside Babylonian omen texts and all the other interesting ideas about the divine nature of the stars, which were clearly about in 5th and 4th centuries BCE, how the idea that the heavens could determine what happens here on Earth could have been extracted just from the Aristotelian theory of the heavens. And that would bring us to a very astrological way of viewing life here on Earth. And this brings us to the final topic for this episode, fate. Here's the problem in a nutshell. If the stars and planets determine what happens down here, what does this make of our ideas as human beings that we choose things? The idea of fate, 
And in Western esotericism, the idea of fate nearly always goes hand in hand with the idea of astral determinism, is one side of a dichotomy which runs through the more philosophic side of Western esotericism down the ages. The question of how human free will can work if we live in an astrally determined universe. In fact, philosophical debates about free will and determinism have tended largely to ignore the central importance of classical astronomical theory to the debate throughout most of Western culture, the valiant efforts of scholars like Peter Adamson notwithstanding. We're introducing the idea here, the idea of astral determinism and fate, but we will have a lot more to say on it in upcoming episodes. In the meantime, even with a ruthless desire to slash everything from our story, which is not centrally important, we run on longer than usual in this episode. But don't blame us. It was written in the stars. It was probably an ill-starred and overambitious thing to attempt anyway, but like Virgil's Aeneas, we have come per ardua ad astra. Join us next time for another stellar effort as we try to bring the complex threads of scientific thought bubbling in the Hellenistic world together to document the roots of Hellenistic astrology. Until then, stay esoteric right at the center of the cosmos.